Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Live Life Liberated with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. Today, Chris Osmond is behind the microphone. First time running the mic. Chris, how are you? You know, uh, Ark, I'm great. It's great, great to be here. And I'm excited to kick off my inaugural Centura Wealth Advisory podcast with you and our, our esteemed guest, Paul Caseberg, to discuss such a relevant topic in today, inflation and multifamily real estate. Today, we're going to discuss how real estate protects against inflation, as well as dig into how interest rates and inflation are impacting multifamily real estate today. Now, before I introduce Paul formally and, and get us started, I want to provide a brief background and introduction to myself. So uh, as you mentioned, my name is Chris Osmond. I'm the new Chief Investment Officer here at Centura Wealth Advisory. So as Chief Investment Officer, I'll be drawing on my nearly 20 years of experience managing investments for successful families and high net worth investors, ultra high net worth families, uh, for some of our nation's largest financial institutions, as well as my experience previously serving as a chief investment officer for a $17 billion registered investment advisor, just like Centura is. Now, to, so I'll be looking to guide the overall investment philosophy, as well as build and manage unique investment solutions and developing a robust alternative investment platform to help ensure Centura's clients are equipped with the proper tools uh, in order to help meet their financial goals and objectives. But that's enough about me. So, uh, before us, you know, I'm very fortunate to introduce our guest, Chief Investment Officer of MG Properties, Paul Caseberg. Now, for our clients listening, odds are you're familiar with MG Properties. But for those who are not familiar with MG Properties, they're a premier commercial real estate operator specializing in multifamily real estate. And we just are so fortunate enough to have them headquartered right here in our backyard of San Diego. So without further ado, Paul, thanks for joining us. It's an honor to have you, and I'm excited to dig into our topic today. But before we do, will you please provide our listeners with your background, as well as a little more formal introduction to MG Properties? Sure. Thank you, Chris. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I've been enjoying listening to it, so it'll be a lot of fun to, to have the conversation today. So my name's Paul Caseberg. Uh, I am MG's Chief Investment Officer, as you mentioned. Uh, so a little back, background on MG. Uh, MG is a 30-year-old uh, owner-operator of multifamily properties. So we have, throughout our history, only purchased and operated uh, multifamily properties. We're, uh, we're specialists in that space. We're vertically integrated. So we handle all our own property management, construction management in-house here based out of our San Diego office with uh, regional expertise throughout all of our regions. We have about 27,000 units from uh, Denver West, and we have uh, concentrations in, in most of those major markets. I, uh, I have been with MG since 2010. My background is I was an engineer out of undergrad. I, uh, I worked on satellites for a while and did corporate M&A at Northrop Grumman. And then I got into the real estate business, and uh, when the uh, the dot com bust hit, and I was doing uh, in house venture capital, uh, that opportunity was going away for a little while. And I had some friends in the real estate business, and they said, you know, you should give this a try. Uh, it's uh, you, you you know all all the things you like about venture capital 
are, are present in real estate. So I gave it a try, really enjoyed it. And I've been in, in real estate for a long time. I uh, joined MG, as I said, in, in 2010, just as we were coming out of the financial crisis. And uh, it has been a tremendous run in the apartment business uh, since then. That's a that's a great story, Paul. Thanks thanks for sharing. And without further ado, I you know let's uh, let's get started talking about today's topic. And you know, I want to start by giving a little bit of framing on today's current environment. We're certainly in very precarious times. We're facing economic environment that is nothing less than tumultuous. Uh, we're going on a hundred days of a war between Russia and Ukraine. China's still battling to find economic footing as they continue to deal with widespread shutdowns as a result of COVID outbreaks. The equity markets have sold off significantly, with the NASDAQ now more than bear territory and almost beyond its drawdown that experienced in COVID. We're experiencing one of the worst starts to the year in the equity markets. And they're not alone there, right? Interest rates have spiked. We're the 40-year bull market that we've experienced with bonds will that's over. (laughs) Uh, And if the year were to end today, this would be the worst year on record by more than fourfold uh, for bonds. Uh, So it's been very rough for asset allocators, investment managers that have really leaned on diversification uh, for investing on behalf of their, their clients. You know, now, now after almost two years, the most expansive fiscal monetary stimulus we've ever experienced that well is starting to run dry. The government has stopped stuffing bank accounts with COVID-induced stimulus checks, and the Federal Reserve has finally stopped buying bonds at a clip of $120 billion a month. Rather, now they started tightening monetary policy and raising interest rates and starting to reduce their balance sheet in June, all in hopes of curtailing inflation, which is one of our primary topics today in the podcast. Now, speaking of inflation, we're looking at 40-year highs. CPI is running at 8.3% through April. And though uh, anyone that you've talked to, I and mean, I'm sure, Paul, you've, you've experienced as well as hard, you go to the grocery store, you fill up your tank at the gas pump, it yeah. definitely feels like prices have gone up more than 8%. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, just for instance, if we look at that April's CPI report, the largest variable makes about a third of, the, of CPI is shelter. You know, so that would be like rent, home prices, things of that nature. Well, rents are up what nearly sixteen percent, and price of homes over twenty, almost twenty percent year year over year. Yet rents are up five. So I, I feel inflation is actually somewhat uh, underreported. Yeah. Uh, but I'll, I'll digress. <laughs> uh, you know, at the end of the day, no one really likes inflation, right? It, it erodes the value of our assets and ability to purchase goods. Now, if you think about it, hundred dollars today is going to purchase less goods than hundred dollars will in five years from now. So while it's, while inflation is not really a welcome uh, uh, happening, there are ways to hedge against that erosion, and that's what really I want to switch gears and start talking about now. And perhaps one of the strongest ways to combat inflation is by investing in real assets like real estate. So, Paul, why is real estate such an effective tool to hedge against inflation? Yeah, well, I'll talk about that, but I, I can't help myself. I have to kind of weigh in on your comment about inflation being a little bit lagging right now because you know you mentioned that shelter is the biggest component of that. And if you take shelter and food and transportation, I mean, those together are about 75% of, of CPI, right? And so you know, the food and, and transportation, those have been kind of leading the headlines in terms of 
what people are feeling the the inflation. But as you mentioned, rents are up very substantially. I mean, in a lot of our markets, we're talking about 20 to 30% increases in rents. And we'll talk about this, but those rents haven't, not all of the residents who are in those properties have been reset to today's market rents. And so the, the components of that shelter are not reflecting where rents are today. There's some catch up just to get to today's rents. And so I I fear that there's there's more to come on the shelter portion of that CPI number, which, like you said, is the biggest part of it. And um, and you know, it's it's obviously it's not great to have inflation as high as it is. You know, inflation's eroding the the value of the dollar. At the same time, disinflation. Typically, when we think back to the times where there's been big disinflation, that you know that equals the times where we had major recessions, and so that's not right. you know not good either. And so the Fed's in this kind of difficult situation where they're going to have to thread the needle, right? With absolutely, um, you know, I, I don't envy the folks at the Fed. So we'll. Uh, I think they used to be trying for a soft landing. I think now they're trying for a soft-ish landing, right? And they're just trying <laughs> yep. not to not to crater the economy, try to get their arms around inflation, and um, and we certainly wish them well, but. In the meantime, so you asked about about real estate and and how it responds to inflation. And I think over the long term, generally, real estate is one of the havens for investors who are looking for some shelter from inflation. So, you know, I kind of think about as an investor, the two things that I generally worry about are an economic downturn where the, you know, the fundamentals of my investment are eroding and the demand's falling away or an inflationary situation where just the value of that dollar is eroding. And like you said, it's been 40 years since we've really had the latter. But what we've had in the last two years is first COVID hit and you had the former and now the latter is hitting and we're having inflation. And so you have this double hit um, that that has been impacting the economy. And so I, I think as inflation has picked up, investors appreciate that when you're in real estate, over the long term, the the rents that you get from that real estate adjust up to reflect the weakening value of the dollar as inflation hits. So real estate generally tends to be a haven for folks who are who are looking for something that's going to respond to um, to inflationary times. But not all real estate is necessarily the same in that respect. So, you know, I mentioned that multifamily rents. Not all of those residents have been marked to today's market rents. But our lease terms are usually about 12 months-ish. And so they're relatively short in the world of real estate when you compare them to triple net investments or office investments, industrial investments that are more like five or 10 years or even longer. So for those investments, they do reset, but it may be 10 years before you get a real reset that reflects then market rents. And so they they have actually been uh, hurt by the jump in inflation and the jump in interest rates, which I'm sure we'll talk about, whereas multifamily resets a lot faster. And so I think of the different types of real estate, generally investors like to focus on multifamily. I mean, over the long term, they all reset. But like Kane says, you know, in the long term, we're all dead. <laughs> yep, very, very, very true. You know, I, I often hear that multifamily is often considered not recession proof. I don't think really anything's recession proof, but often recession resilient. Can you can you speak to that a little bit, Paul? Why is it that multifamily, especially perhaps in today's environment, would multifamily be considered more recession resilient than perhaps other types of real estate? 
Yeah. And again, I think the last two years have been a real case study for, for why that is. So when COVID hit, um, in fact, maybe it's worth talking about the a little bit longer view on multifamily as an investment class, right? So if you, if you go back about 25 years over the longer term, how has multifamily worked as an investment? And it's been our, our average returns for multifamily on an unlevered basis have been kind of in the nine to 10% range on average over the last 25 years. And you can go get that data from Nakerif, uh, you know, some other online sources. So that's on average. When you compare that to other asset classes, it's, it's in the ballpark. They tend to be in that kind of eight to nine, nine and a half range. But multifamily is on the high side. What's notable is the standard deviation of our returns is actually uh, pretty pretty low in comparison to other asset types, and so they, you know, multifamily when the economy drops doesn't drop quite as far, and then as it recovers, it recovers faster, and so that's I think one of the reasons why investors see it as being inflation resistant. What we've seen since COVID hit over the last couple of years is COVID hit, and demand just fell off a cliff for things like office, because everyone was working from home, retail. The two kind of standouts in terms of real estate investments were multifamily, because everyone still uh, needs a place to live. And by the way, they probably are less inclined to live with a roommate during COVID. And then the other investment class that did well was industrial. And that really reflected all the you know, the trend toward shopping online uh, during COVID. So those two asset classes did well. And now that inflation has hit, what you've seen is some of the industrial assets have struggled because of those long lease terms. But again, multifamily structure with those short lease terms have meant that it's done pretty well since, you know, since this inflation started kicking in, in comparison to other, other types of assets. So generally, you know, just the fact that multifamily is is people's homes. It's just the, the the demand side from residents for multifamily is just a little bit less variable than it is for, for commercial assets. Great. No, I agree. <laughs> agree completely. If we if we shift a little bit, I mean we talked a little bit about how multifamily real estate can help hedge against inflation. I want to switch a little bit and talk about how inflation is impacting the multifamily housing market today. We're, we're seeing rising input costs across the board, right? From raw materials to labor. And I'm, I'm curious, how has this impacted MG, MG properties as you're looking at opportunities to either acquire or even dispose of an asset? So inflation... We're feeling it in the multifamily industry, just like everyone is. Um, it, it's, you know, it, in theory, inflation impacts everything. What we've seen so far with this inflation is that a lot of prices are going up, but it, it's not uniform across all goods and services. So specifically on the cost side of the equation for us, the construction costs are up. So lumber is up, steel is up, asphalt's up, kind of all in the range of uh, 25 to 50%, which is extremely substantial. And then labor is getting more expensive. And so that impacts both the development side of the business and us. Uh, so we don't do ground up development. We just do existing uh, properties. 
but our payroll is up uh, since we self-manage. And so that's definitely impacting us. Some other costs are up too. Things like digital marketing uh, has been an increase for us. Our R&M costs have gone up. So overall costs have gone up. I think it's really impacted the development side of the business more substantially. And as those construction costs go up, both the labor and the materials, that's going to slow down the construction pipeline. And that, that's going to slow down that delivery of new product. That means less competition from new apartments for existing apartments. And hopefully that helps to support rents. You know, on, the, on the revenue side, we felt the effects of inflation. And that is really, there's been a lot of household liquidity with a 40% increase in, in M2, right? And so that's distributed out pretty widely to residents. Disproportionately, I think, to lower income residents who also tend to rent. And so renters have been in a pretty strong situation, both with stimulus and also with wages going up. And so that's been reflected in the growth in rents. You know, that's up about 15, 17% above where it was pre COVID. And so if everything on the revenue side and the expense side went up equally with multifamily, that would actually cause values to go up because our expense ratios are only you know, 35, 45%. So our NOI goes up disproportionately and then values go up. So inflation you know, by itself, because of the cost structure of multifamily is, um, has been pretty helpful. And so we've been seeing that so far. Now that, that all, that all makes sense, you know, and I remember when, man, I, I probably you mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, what was it? Maybe five, seven years ago where cap rates at, you know, 7% were, con- were considered cheap. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, you know, right now, right now we're, we're looking at what four on, on average cap rates in, in multifamily. And yeah. when, when you factor in the, the cost of debt, you know, a lot of the, the opportunities that we're looking at, a lot of operators are starting out with, with essentially negative leverage out of the gate on, on new opportunities because that cost of debt is higher than their cap rates. Um, how has that impacted MG properties business in this current environment, as well as those underwriting assumptions? We have, we have absolutely seen that, right? So the story of many years in this business has been the steady decrease in cap rates. And that's that started to turn around uh, with the increase in interest rates, but it hasn't changed substantially yet. So I think there are three big stories in the multifamily industry, which you know over the last eighteen months has been nothing like anyone's seen um, you know in their careers. So the three big stories are twenty twenty one rent growth was just incredible. Twenty twenty one cap rates dropped substantially, and then twenty twenty two inflation and sort of concurrently uh, mortgage rates increasing, right? And so those three things are all tied together. And to take the, the cap rate portion of that specifically, it's actually really interesting to look at what's happening there because the cap rates are a reflection of the incredible growth in rents that we saw. And so what happened was rents grew so fast when we were looking at properties that we would, you know, were considering buying, the rents that were in place are substantially below, perhaps 15, 20% below where current market rents were at certain points last year because the rents just moved up so quickly. So you had what's what we call loss to lease, which is this revenue loss 
a difference between where the rents are in the current rent roll and today's market rents. And so the cap rates dropping so fast were really reflecting the fact that there was this big loss to lease. And if you just continued to rent uh, units at today's market rents, your revenue was going to go up really substantially over the course of the next year or two. And so what's kind of interesting about those really low cap rates and when you compare them to negative leverage times in the past were, for instance, before the financial crisis, right? So before the financial crisis, you had negative leverage and really low cap rates where investors were believing that the future was going to be amazing and it was going to keep being amazing for many years. They were believing in this future growth. Whereas last year, those really low cap rates you know, some of it was a belief in growth, but a lot of it was a belief in what already happened in the past and just that coming up to today's market rents. So it's kind of a looking back versus a looking forward. So kind of an interesting dynamic last year that, that we just have never seen before. And then this year with interest rates going up, it, it's been really substantial. So interest rates, just for context about where rates have been through COVID. So COVID hit and... Um, Values of multifamily really did not decline substantially. The, the transaction volume went down for a couple of months while everyone was working from home and figuring out where values were. But what happened was the mortgage rates for multifamily along with the 10-year treasury dropped. And so we, when we saw that, our, we, we tried to get back into acquisitions as quickly as we could after COVID. We did about a half a billion dollars of acquisitions in, um, in 2020, and we started in the second quarter, and we locked our first deal at a 235 fixed 10-year full-term interest-only rate, which is just tremendous in the, you know, in the context of where, where mortgages are historically. So we saw this opportunity. We tried to take as much advantage of it as we could. The rates started to increase. And in 2021, for most of the year, we were looking at interest rates that were kind of in the mid threes. Today, what we're looking at is interest rates that are closer to the mid fours for, for most borrowers. And so, so with interest rates in the mid fours and cap rates at, call it four, you have this negative leverage situation. So I think when I see that, I, you know, I, I try to ask myself, what do investors believe that's causing them to transact with these metrics, right? And, and I think that, that dynamic of negative leverage is a reflection to me that investors are saying, I'm expecting inflation and also rent growth to increase over the course of the next couple of years. And so the fact that I'm locking in today's negative leverage, when you get that inflation and growth over the next couple of years, that's gonna turn positive and make this a, a solid cash flowing investment. And so I think that's the, the mindset that investors have in the current environment is they're looking at this potential inflation and saying, it makes sense for me to start with some negative leverage because I'm gonna grow my way out of that. I think that's what's happening in the market. The other, um, the other factor that's, that's probably worth mentioning is that debt is not the same for everyone in the multifamily space or the commercial real estate space. So multifamily benefits from really exceptional capital market situation because we have Fannie and Freddie who, who lend. Mm -hmm. And so generally lenders like lending on multifamily because it is, again, kind of the considered the safer asset class. And so they're pretty aggressive with it. And we have these GSEs that provide really attractive debt into the market too. So you saw in the, in the financial crisis and during COVID, the, uh, the GSEs were there 
kept lending with attractive financing. And so multifamily was much more liquid and the prices went down much less than other types of asset classes. And then within multifamily, not all borrowers get the same rates too. So MG is a preferred borrower with Fannie and Freddie and some other lenders. And so that can have perhaps a 30 basis point uh, difference in the mortgage rates too. So that, that also helps out. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it's interesting hearing you talk that while real estate is such a great inflationary hedge, that doesn't mean that the industry as a whole doesn't still experience challenges as a result of inflation. Just, just hearing talk that started ringing really, really loud. Um, you know, talking talking about interest rates, you know, and and how mortgage rates have responded year to date. We've we've seen home prices up twenty percent uh, year over year, and the thirty year mortgage, which happens to be tied, big misconception. It's not necessarily tied to the Fed raising the Fed funds rate, which when they say they're raising rates, that's what they're doing. That's the basically the overnight borrowing rate. The thirty year mortgage is much higher; it has a much higher correlation to the ten year treasury. And as such, while the, the 10-year treasury has, has spiked you know, nearly 2% year-to-date, 30-year mortgages have spiked more than 2% year-to-date. And so again, back on the heel of that 20% price increase of homes, we've seen home affordability, which are those are the two prominent uh, variables when you look at home affordability, reach the lowest since 2007. With home affordability so low as a result of home prices increasing so much, as well as interest rates, what does this mean for multifamily housing going forward? It is it is really, again, such an unusual situation, right? Like you pointed out. I mean, home affordability, that affordability has been one of the key metrics that we really try to track in our markets. And that's been one of the reasons why we were really bullish on the Sunbelt states, and, and why I think they're, they saw so much growth. Uh, it's actually interesting to see them become a lot less affordable since COVID with all the migration from you know, kind of core coastal markets out to the Phoenixes and Vegases and Texases. And so that, that affordability on both the apartment side and the single family side have, have really been tough. So since, since before COVID, in kind of rough numbers, personal incomes are up about 15% and home prices are up about 40%. And then you layer on the fact that the 30-year mortgages went from 3% to 5% or higher, right? So that that has just crushed affordability on the single family side. And I think what that what we're seeing is that's causing a lot more people to be renters by necessity because they just can't afford single family homes right now. And that has been a tailwind for the rental market. And I think that has been a contributor for sure to last year's growth and, and also to, I think, the, the growth that we're seeing this year as well. So I think, you know, I, I think that growth in asset values is just not sustainable, right? Because you can't, you can't perpetually have 15% um, income growth and 40% expense growth. Those things will ultimately... Uh, and badly, right? So right. It, it's going to moderate. And I think on the single family side, we expect those prices to, to slow down in terms of just, they're just not going to grow as fast. And I think, you know, on the, on the rental side, we expect rents to moderate as well. They've been growing at an unsustainably fast pace. And we expect that, that growth to slow down, not necessarily for rents to go down. So, you know, so I, I think that's inevitable. I think what we have noticed is 
the affordability gap between single family and apartment renting has spiked. So it's about uh, it, it's about a, on nationwide something like seven hundred fifty dollars a month more cost to uh, buy a home than it is to rent an apartment. And so that's about twice what the normal gap is between the two. So it would, you know, home prices and mortgage rates would really have to go down for it to be more attractive to buy a home than to rent an apartment. So I think that is going to continue to be a little bit of a tailwind for our industry. I I would definitely agree. And with that gap narrowing, do you ever foresee a period of time, at least in the immediate future, um, let's say immediate being over the next perhaps three to five years, where the rent affordability falls below home affordability? You know, I think there's such a big gap right now because of the high cost of of buying single family that it it would just take um, a tremendous drop in in values in single family to uh, to make it more attractive to to buy a home than rent one. So uh, it, it's not impossible, but we're, I think we're a long way from that world. Okay. Now we got one more one more question for you, Paul. You know, we've we've talked a lot about inflation today, and I think we can all agree it's it's we're well beyond the I'll use air quotes here transitory <laughs> um, <laughs> impact of inflation. And we're, we're staring down the barrel of a gun of, of the Fed, and they are gung-ho on doing anything and everything to control inflation and essentially cripple it. And so with that, some may question whether they miss their chance to invest in real estate and use that as an effective hedge uh, against that, uh, you know, the inflationary pressures. You know, what words of wisdom might you bestow on those investors? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, look, it's it, that just sort of illustrates why we have negative leverage right now, right? Is that kind of investor mindset of, of where the world is headed. Obviously, the best strategy would be to go back in time two years and, and, and buy apartments then. But I think even with, even with the increase in values of apartments, the way, the way that we look at it is how does that compare with other investment alternatives? So, you know, apartments with with cap rates around four percent. You compare that to the kind of yields that you get from an investment in the equity market, which is some somewhere in the one point four percent range, right? And and kind of bonds, you know, obviously very widely, but but overall kind of sub three percent for kind of a diversified bucket of them. So when you look at four percent for an asset that has the ability to reset with inflation. Um, up and and acts like a nice inflation hedge. It has some attributes of equities and some attributes of bonds. That feels pretty good. And so I think that's why we're hearing from our investors that they're still very excited to allocate more to multifamily. So we take the view that we're really long-term investors. We're not short-term traders. We're in this for the long-term. Our strategy is we buy good real estate, that's well-located. We try to use moderate leverage. And 10 years from now, when we look back on it, you know, time, time has shown that if you can hold good real estate for a long time, you generally are happy with that. So I don't, I don't think that mindset has really changed. I think you know, for investors who are deciding what to do, I, I guess, and I think about this the same exact way, is you look at your portfolio and you think to yourself, you know, what, what is the appropriate allocation for real estate and multifamily in a correctly diversified portfolio? And if you're not allocated correctly, then 
you reallocate to be, uh, you know, in line with your objective. So I guess uh, my recommendation would be to find an excellent wealth advisory firm who might be able to point you in the right direction and, um, intent, and work intent. together to come up with a plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, Paul, I think, I think you said it very well. And which is why probably Centura and MG Properties are so aligned because we share so many uh, similar philosophies as it pertains to long-term investing. And I know our clients have benefited greatly from the strategic relationship and partnership that we have with MG Properties. So I want to thank you for, for that relationship and for everything you do on behalf of M, uh, on behalf of Centura as well as our clients. And I also want to thank you so much for you know, coming on today and talking about inflation and multifamily housing. It's been an honor to have you. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a lot of fun and uh, looking forward to the next time. Gentlemen, this has been fantastic. I love all the information and the very subtle hint about Centura. But thank you so much again, Paul. Thank you for being on the show. I just want to echo what Chris said. You brought so much value to it. And Chris, great job. First podcast. You navigated it well. You, You hosted it beautifully. So thank you for facilitating this. And of course, our last thank you goes to the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when they come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it really easy to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Centura Wealth Advisory, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results. 